Welcome to the Total Car Score Podcast, bringing you the world of cars from inside the car. And now your hosts, Carl Brower, Lauren Fix, and Javier Mota. Well, we're back here for another episode of our podcast with Carl Brower and Lauren Fix, and we have Anton Wallman, our friend, who we had uh, at the beginning of the year. How are you, Anton? Outstanding and improving. What about yourself? Excellent. Always like that. I like that attitude. How are you, Lauren? I'm great. Been busy test driving cars and learning about a lot of new stuff happening. So it's been busy. Good. Good stuff. No, Yeah. Carl too, right? Like California, it's always something to do, as you were saying. Uh, total train wreck, crash. Everything's horrible. Sorry. I just had to give some, I had to give a different attitude than everyone else. Sorry. <laughs> I know. No, things are, it seems to be getting back to whatever, quote unquote, normal, however you want to call it. So I was thinking about that we can do this episode with happy and like not so happy or angry stuff that is happening. So first, Lauren, congratulations on um, Woman History Month. And you were there. You did a very interesting posting and uh, you are part of it, right? Well, yeah, I, I, mine's more aftermarket, but it's not the current vehicles that you drive. But yeah, I've, I've always been a part of the auto industry and created an invention that not didn't think it was going to be anything big other than a few sales, and it's now a mainstay in the automotive aftermarket. So it was kind of cool. You want to tell, Should us I tell about you it? what it is? <laughs> sure. Um, in 1982, a long time ago, I was in high school, and um, my father had a breakaway manufacturing company. I had been working for him since I was a kid. And I was at a cruise night, and I asked a bunch of friends telling about what I was doing with Corvette brakes, and they said, Hey, you should do Mustang. So I went my father and I created the Mustang brakes to be done in stainless steel. And it was just pretty much a normal thing by that time in the 80s that you sleeved calipers in stainless steel. It's for collectible cars from 65 to 82 Corvettes. We expanded to other areas, but I took that to a Shelby convention and I sat at a table with a bunch of Mustang brakes hoping people would want to buy it. And a lot of people would come and say, I love it, but I got drum brakes. Of course, I didn't know any better. I'm like, well, why do you have drum brakes? They go, well, unless you have a GT or a Shelby, you don't have disc brakes. So I said, well, why not put them on? They go, I don't know how to do that. So I went home, talked to my dad. He said, go for it. And I created the first drum to disc brake conversion kit for 1965 to 67 Mustangs. And it then blossomed into more cars and rear disc brake kits. And we beat Ford Motorsport to the market with the Fox body chassis, which is 79 to 82 Mustangs. And uh, it became something unusual. I didn't realize would uh, turn into a normal thing now in the automotive aftermarket. So I'm pretty excited to be a part of that. And that design and blueprints, everything I drew myself, I submitted to the Society of Automotive uh, Engineers, and they accepted me, not knowing that I didn't even have a high school education at the time. Wow, that's amazing. Congratulations. And I didn't want to go to the end of the, the month without talking about it. Well, thank you. I appreciate it. Yeah, there's a whole bunch of them on, a, on my Car Coach Reports YouTube channel. I picked 10 of the many, many, many women who are part of the automotive aftermarket and the automotive industry that made things better for us every day. Great. So uh, let's talk to Anton a little bit because uh, uh, there's been a lot of news, uh, good and bad, I guess. And Anton has a very particular perspective of everything, especially in the financial aspect of it. So Anton, tell me uh, what have you caught your attention this week? There's a lot of things about like plants going idle, production uh, uh, cuts because of shortage of uh, some supplies. It seems to be in some parts, the industry is doing good, but in, in others, not so good, right? 
Yeah, so there are so many things going on, Javier, and one of them is a subject that we touched on right around uh, January 1st on the first episode, and that has to do with increasing cost. So the input costs into the industry are you know, skyrocketing left and right, uh, from plastics to, of course, based on oil products. Oil has gone up by a significant double-digit percentages this year. We've had a semiconductor shortage of all things that are now stopping assembly lines across the whole world. Who would have thought? So the cost of making an automobile is going up. The wages for workers are going up. But most importantly, it's a raw materials issue where all of the basic foundations for a vehicle, copper has, what, tripled or quadrupled in just a few months. So all of these things that are going into automobiles are going to make the automobile far more expensive. So if you thought that we were in for a year of a low demand leading to lower prices, we may simply have a kind of a stagflationary year, which means that uh, we're going to have more money uh, sent out, uh, checks from the government and whomever else out of thin air, chasing fewer and fewer goods. And what is the result of that in basic economics? Well, it's higher prices. Yeah, Carl, what have you seen from your perspective? And, uh, have you seen any changes? I mean, I know your new sidecar expert is pretty new, but have you seen any trends lately in what's going on this year? Well, we're always getting a lot of good statistics off of um, IC Cars, the other uh, website that I'm uh, working with on a regular basis. They have great data that shows a lot of the market activity. And what Anton just said is pretty much what we're starting to see already. Um, you know, we're, we're looking at things like the fastest selling cars, cars that are changing, you know, get, days on market is a common um, uh, term that we hear. And that's how long the car sits on the dealer after it arrives before someone buys it and drives it away. And so we look at the cars that have the shortest days on market or DOM, and um, they're all expensive, high-priced cars, which reflects that the certain uh, economic categories in this country are still able to buy cars without any hesitation, but it also reflects that there's plenty of people out there who can't buy cars quite as easily. So when you see the fastest cars changing hands are also tend to be the most expensive. The Corvette, as an example, was the fastest selling car in January and February with an average retail price around $80,000, the way they've been equipped and a lot of luxury large SUVs. And on the used market, it's been the, the fastest selling car on the used market, believe it or not, is the Mercedes-Benz G-Wagon, which if you know what that <laughs> car is, I know all, everyone here, every one of us on the show knows that. That isn't exactly the cheapest, smallest uh, Mercedes SUV. Actually, sorry, it's the biggest, most expensive Mercedes SUV. So uh, we're definitely that, that seeing Nobody price. needs what everybody yeah. likes, especially in LA, New York, Miami. Exactly. Mm -hmm. You got Cor Corvettes and G-Wagons selling well. So you don't exactly have need-based, you know, uh, uh, high-volume, mainstream American car buyers buying cars right now. You have wealthy people because they're the only ones who, uh, after the past 12 months, still have plenty of money to spend on cars. So um, that's a bit of a disappointing uh, statistics to be seen when we look at those lists. And it, it reflects that, you know, I'd hate to think that ultimately it's going to be the uh, domain of the rich to own your own car. But if what Anton says is true, that, that could be the way things are heading. Yeah, but Lauren, don't you? Th I think you agree with that statement, right? Like in, in the next maybe 10, 15, 20 years, that's going to be the case, I think. Right. Um, I actually am um, constantly watching the market. And one of the things I do want to ask Anton about is the chip shortage. Um, 
I've been told, and you can definitely correct me, Anton, because I know you get your ear to the ground, that China's pretty perturbed that we have uh, tariffs against them, and they've cut back on their delivery of chips to 80% of our current usage, hoping that they'll change their mind in the government. Of course, we don't talk about politics, but that does impact the auto industry. And how is this going to get resolved? What are your thoughts? Well, right now, uh, so there are so many different types of chips. You've got the higher value chips that are the expensive. They're, they're typically referred to a system on a chip made by companies like Broadcom and Intel and Qualcomm. Those are typically made by actually manufactured outside of China proper. They're made by Taiwan Semiconductor, which is one of the most valuable companies in the world. They're made in fabrication plants in Singapore and in Taiwan mostly. But then you have a whole layer of other types of lower level chips that are indeed sourced from uh, mainland China. So you have a lot of things going on here at the same time. And some of these things can be used as substitutes for each other in some cases when it comes to more you know, commoditized chips, these lower level ones, but the more expensive, complicated systems on a chip, uh, those, you know, you can't really substitute one for another. So it's a little bit unclear as to how many months it will take to get out of these shortages. But the fact that it has having such a huge impact now, you may recall that back in February of last year, so 13 months ago, when the whole virus business first hit the front pages, we were really concerned most of all with a um, supply line shortage because there were so many parts coming from China. Well, somehow we managed to get through all of that for almost a full year. And not until January of this year did we suddenly face this new shortage. So it is a bit counterintuitive, in my opinion, as to how this was sequenced and the reasons for why it happened. And we do not simply have all of those answers quite yet. Interesting. Let's uh, have to Anton for another segment. We are running out of time now, but uh, we'll be back with more interesting topics, including there's a lot of news about Tesla. I know it's one of your favorite topics, Lauren. <laughs> Good and bad. So we'll be back. With yes. That. Welcome back to this episode when we have Anton Wallman as our guest and we're analyzing what's going on in the industry. So Anton and uh, Carl and Lauren, I don't know if you want to go in that order. There's been a lot of headlines with Tesla, like the cameras are like spying on people pretty much. Elon now says that you can buy uh, your car with Bitcoin. So I don't know who wants to go first. Let, let's start with Anton. Yeah. So on the whole Bitcoin thing, that's really uh, kind of a, a marketing a gimmick because it's sort of like you're sell, selling your house and you sell an exotic car with your house that is not necessarily so exotic and you could have bought it separately anyway. So it's really a way to get uh, some news out of uh, really a commodity event, such as selling a house or in this case, a vehicle. Because at the end of the day, Tesla wants dollars. The fact that you can offer a Bitcoin uh, as payment for a Tesla means that simply Tesla at the moment of purchase exchanges that unit of Bitcoin for dollars. So at the end of the day, yeah, you're paying with Bitcoin, but not really. And oh, by the way, that's also a taxable event. So say that you bought a Bitcoin at a far lower price, and now you're selling one unit of Bitcoin for $55,000. Well, you may have a you know 50 some odd thousand dollar taxable event per the IRS guidelines. So do you really want to do this in conjunction with 
uh, buying your vehicle, buying a new Tesla may essentially end up uh, kicking you up into a new higher tax bracket. So yeah, there are so many things going on with this company right now. You mentioned the whole cameras and security concerns in China. We have all of these other concerns from the US now with respect to autopilot and the fact that the testing around it is so poor that uh, the authorities may start to take a more dim view of uh, testing autopilot and full full and autopilot and full self driving on U.S. roads. So uh, yeah, Tesla is going to have its mouth full here trying to fend off uh, all of these uh, issues. Yeah, Carl, what was your favorite headline? I liked watching the dust up between uh, Ford and Tesla, and specifically. Uh, um, Gerber, is that his name? The, the major, um, financial advisor guy, who's a huge Tesla fan trying to, uh, tell people that you can't really compare the, the Mustang Mach-E to a Tesla. There's really no comparison. And, uh, I had fun talking to, uh, my reporter friend at the Detroit free press and telling them, <clears throat> you know, yeah, you're right. Except for the fact that every major physical dimension of the two cars is within one in inch of each other. And, uh, the horsepower range and pricing overlaps completely beside uh, between those two cars, uh, as well as most of the acceleration numbers, but otherwise their cars are really not comparable in any way, shape or form, you know? So, uh, I enjoyed, uh, watching what is clearly Tesla and their fans trying to say, I don't care how many people buy a Mustang Mach-E. It's really not going to be any threat to the Tesla Model Y. It's like, okay. <laughs> yeah, now more more manufacturers are coming out with the cars finally. Hyundai, Volkswagen, the Volkswagen ID is already being delivered. Again, like not in big numbers that can compare, but they're they're getting their competition, right, Lauren? Yes, they are. And it's funny, I, I will only call it a Mach-E. I will not use the other word that Ford calls it. Um, but it, it Mustang. I uh, can't say that unless you're talking about a rear-wheel drive sports car <laughs> um, that has a lot of horsepower and melts dinosaurs. But um, as far as Tesla, it's interesting. He's going to have a battery problem, and he just shut down one of his plants as well. I believe it's the one in Norway. I know Anton knows a lot about it. And we should qualify that if you want to read some of Anton's really impressive insight, he writes for Seeking Alpha. And you can go on there and you don't even have to subscribe, but you can subscribe to his Seeking Alpha site and you can get all of Anton's articles as they post. I do. I've always been impressed with him and we've been longtime friends, but he's got a great insight on Tesla. And you've got actually an interesting story, your history there. But I'm going to let you answer that question because I think what you have to say on this is we talk about this all the time. So I feel it's like so comfortable for us. So go ahead, Anton. Tell us what you know about this plant shutting down and your history with Tesla. Well, we have um, uh, Tesla's building two new plants, one in Germany outside of Berlin and one uh, in Austin. And uh, these uh, construction efforts are underway. And there are some issues, especially in Germany with uh, uh, permitting and so forth. So that is still yet to be resolved. We shall see that in the coming uh, weeks and months here, how they manage to resolve that because that plant is so supposed to be finished by roughly the end of this year. But uh, when it comes to Tesla and the competition, here's really the big picture is that we saw that the automakers at various points between 2014 and early 2016 really decided to make a very, very big set of bets on pure electric cars. And most people outside of the automotive industry never really fully appreciate the very long development cycles for these vehicles, right? They, they take 
depending on what type of new platform needs to be developed and so forth, it's anywhere between four and five years typically. So much of this stuff was baked to come out roughly near the end of year 2020, the year that just ended. And we saw that happen in so many cases. But uh, it should have been obvious to many people in the market that, wow, all of this competition is coming onto Tesla like a tsunami because the market is supposed to be a bit of a discounting mechanism and that you look at the future and you say, all right, let's discount the future known events into the present time so that we are not overpaying for an asset today. But the market simply ignored all of these things. But now, as the saying goes, the chickens are coming home to roost because all of these models, and there are 500 of them or more than 500 of them on a global basis, we here in the uh, you know Western Hemisphere may only end up seeing 70 or 80 of them uh, for the next three to five years. But uh, all, globally, there are over 500 nameplates that are coming out. And uh, this is going to be a devastating uh, impact on, on Tesla's competitive abilities because all of these EVs are going to com be competing for a limited purchasing pool. Wow, 500. That's pretty amazing. And I didn't know that there were that many. A global basis, you, you have to understand that there are so many of them that are sold only in certain regions. We're yeah. going to have uh, probably over 100 of these are China-only vehicles. I mean, we have a couple of factories that are where Volkswagen owns 50% that just started production in China like this week. Even the Ford uh, Mach-E is also made in China, and that pre-production started also here within the last week. So all of these special versions of these vehicles that may look similar on the outside, but in, in the cases of, say, a, a Maki may have a completely different battery because they have to source by uh, de facto law in China their battery cells from inside China as opposed to coming from some LG factory in Poland, which is where they uh, get sourced for at uh, Ford's factory in Mexico, where they make the Maki for Nor Northern American and European consumption. Carl, what a... Uh model has impressed you besides the Mach-E that you already drove like uh, for new EVs? I think it's impressive the level of resources that Anton was just talking about that all these automakers are throwing at the EV world. I think everyone who's watching sees Volkswagen throwing a lot of resources. And so the model, uh, for instance, the ID4 is the one that's just come out. Now, I haven't been in that one yet, but... Um, and, and, you know, I'm looking at it and I'm looking at the specs and it's like, you know, it's fine. There's nothing that's going to blow me away. I'm still a fan of the Hyundai Kona. Personally, the Kona EV, I think it's one of my favorite EVs right now. But um, I think the ID4 will be competitive there too. Um, but I think, honestly, the what I'm seeing and hearing about the Korean car companies, I think the new uh, Hyundai Ioniq 5 and then the Kia, what is it, EV6? EV6. Uh, those two cars both look very cool, and uh, they probably, just because of my experience now with the Kona EV and how uh, pessimistic Hyundai has been with its range, you know, I mean, it's supposed to be a 246, 247, whatever, and I drove one in one day, 220 plus miles, and it had 40 miles left, 45 miles left. So it was closer, going to be closer to 270 with that delivered, and that was mostly highway, by the way. So I was not trying That's to That's because you live in California. Battery. You live in California. <laughs> I live in Buffalo, and when I had the Mach-E delivered, it said it was a 270-mile range vehicle, which I did like the vehicle. I was really disappointed that when the guy took it off the trailer, it said, it's, it's fully charged. It was 28 degrees outside. I had 190 miles of range. So keep that in mind if you live in cold weather before you go ahead and jump out and buy one. The cold weather does not like batteries. Well, the first rule is you never live where there's cold weather. I mean, we got to get over that problem. Ah. To start. <laughs> 
<laughs> you have to half move. the country, unfortunately, <laughs> and a lot of the world. Yeah, like Anton just moved from uh, Wyoming to Puerto Rico. So there you go. You can do that too. Okay, we're going to be back with one more segment and we're going to talk about uh, which uh, cars have we driven the past few weeks. I had a QX55 and I think you did have two, Lauren, right? So we'll be back with Yeah, that. I had the QX55. I posted my review. I've got the Volvo X, a V60 wagon, the cross country, and a Ranger Tremor in the driveway. Very cool. Looks okay. really good. Let's be back with that. back for the, another segment here on the Total Car Score podcast with Anton Wallman, Carl Brown, and Lauren Fix. And uh, Anton, uh, what have you been driving lately? Are you getting new cars still in Puerto Rico, Wyoming, or wherever you're in the world? Uh, it's a lot less this last few months than previously, but I happened to actually buy a car for my own oh. personal account uh, for the first time in a while. So I actually went for a Kia Seltos, uh, the base model, the absolute base one, which has none of the active safety features whatsoever. I mean, complete stone age from that on that front, which I absolutely love. There are no beeps that nag you or try to break uh, instead of you or any of that. So it's the base model with no sunroof, cloth, the cheapest wheels and tires. And uh, it's actually quite wonderful. And this thing is rated on paper at uh, per the EPA at 31 miles per gallon mixed driving. And I'm getting in real driving, um, not ideal conditions with, you know, a, the AC blasting on full pace, like 40 miles per gallon. This is not a hybrid. It's not even a mild hybrid. Wow. And um, I will say I am extremely impressed with this thing. I am a huge fan. This is the first vehicle that Kia part, partially designed and engineered in India, and it's made in two factories. It's made in India and in Korea. We're getting our Celtuses here in North America from Korea, but uh, they make a version of this vehicle that was first and foremost designed for the Indian and some other related export markets. Wow. And do you know my asking, how much did you pay for that? Yeah, so the base model, uh, it retails in the U.S. for 21990 plus tax. Uh, and, uh, you know, so depending on exactly which version you get, it's going to be either that or with a discount, if you can get a discount these days, or it's going to be more if you want some extras on it. But uh, it runs right around 24000 with tax and uh, a minimal amount of extras. Yeah, not bad. Uh, Carl, how have you been driving lately? So I was in the uh, Lincoln Nautilus uh, last week. And, you know, this is a vehicle that... Um, used to be called the MKX and it didn't get any kind of full redesign for 2021, but, but the interior essentially did get a full redesign, not just like new materials, but the entire shape of the dash and the gauge cluster. And it also got the new largest, uh, central display screen, touch, touch screen display in the Lincoln lineup at 13.2 inches. So it's actually bigger than the navigators right now. So, you know, anyone who's familiar with these car, refreshes and all it's very common that whatever car got the most recent update usually has the best stuff uh even when it hasn't been fully redesigned like the nautilus slash mkx as it used to be called so really nice interior the screen is large and you know high quality and easy to use the sync 4 interface is fairly intuitive uh the quality and the materials inside of it were amazing it's really supple leather and a very nice driver too so um that's really the last lincoln that needed to be kind of at least mostly gone through on the inside, even without a full redesign. The Navigator kind of 
well, really the Continental kind of marked the beginning of the modern day Lincoln brand. And now that the Nautilus has this really refined interior, every other vehicle in their lineup has already gotten the full treatment top to bottom of the modern day Lincoln. So brand is fully transformed now. And uh, I have to say, it's pretty impressive. The It's not the Lincoln of uh, just five, six years ago, the one that you have today, much better. Yeah, they've done a really good job. Uh, Lauren, so you were saying the QX55, what you can tell us about it? I can tell you my opinion when you are done. When I caught it, it was snowing here because I live in Buffalo, New York. So it's funny because the guy, you don't get a lot of time with this, as you know. In my case, they drove the car up from New York City. You said you got, they drops at like 10 in the morning. He says you got to like four in the afternoon. So of course you got to clear your desk and that's the, all you're doing. So it's snowing. I'm like, I got to do this. I, I I can't like wait till tomorrow. So in the middle of the snow, and that's how you can watch it on my channel, uh, Car Coach Reports. It, you know, I'm out there doing, hi, welcome to the channel. It's coming down like crazy. It is unbelievable. It's like an inch an hour and I'm out there like, uh, this is crazy. This is the kind of crazy things that we all run into, especially when we're in other cities. And it happens a lot when you can't control. It's raining, it's snowing, it's whatever, it's windy. Carl and Javier and Anton and we're all out, and I, we're all out there just doing our job. But I liked it. The first thing I thought, mine was like a gunmetal gray like almost had a blue tint to it but it had a red interior and it was nicely done and the first thing it reminded me of when you got in it because it was very driver centric was the fact that it reminded me of a stelvio you know it got it gave me that flavor right away like somebody they must have hired from alfa romeo because a lot of the features were very similar it had two screens i really liked it i was really surprised there was a few things that were negatives but Overall, for what you're getting for the price, I thought they did a great redesign. And the seats were really comfortable because no matter what you're looking at on the outside and how cool it looks, even if it's ugly, it's where you're sitting on the inside and your experience on a daily basis that either makes you want to continue with that brand or never buy it again. Yeah, I think I had the similar uh, model, same colors in the exterior and the interior. Uh, we need to talk a little bit about the engine because it has the um, variable what they call BC Turbo. And, BC, and it, BCT, I, I think it, yeah, Turbo. BC yeah. Turbo, yeah. Well, I think it was pretty decent, especially when you put it in the sport mode. I really liked how it feels, even though with the CVT transmission, the shift powder, uh, powders in the, um, behind the wheel, I think it, was, it, it drives really well, but there's a lot of competition in that segment. So I, I think oh my gosh, uh, it's yeah. still be not my favorite in that segment. It's a huge segment. I mean, it goes it ranges from the Stelvio itself, Porsche Macan, the Lincoln Corsair. I mean, it's huge, huge. Lincoln Range Rover Velar. I'm, I'm sorry, the Land Rover Range Rover Velar, the Jaguar F-Pace. And you start looking Acura MDX, some of the big, big players. And then you start thinking, well, that's a lot because you got, a, you know, a Lexus in there, too. And then you start thinking, well, is this the best? Well, it's one of the good ones. I'm not going to say it's one of the best, but it's it's a pretty good one. I had also the opportunity to drive this week the 2022 Mitsubishi Outlander and um, Eclipse Cross here in Miami. And we are not supposed to talk about it yet, like how we drive this in their embargo. But I had a chance to talk to Jeremy Barnes, who was at Mazda for a long time. And then now he's at Mitsubishi. So I did an interview on a boat, not in the car, because there were still... COVID precautions going on. So um, yeah, let's hear what he has to say. Well, Jeremy, uh, thank you very much for being with us here and coming to Miami. I mean, it's been a long, long time for everybody, right? So yeah. especially for you. So tell us a lot uh, what's going on in Mitsubishi. I mean, Mitsubishi, there's like a lot going on, right? Like, there's, I don't know where to start. Yeah, there's so much happening. I mean, it's 
I won't say we're a start-up, but call Mitsubishi a start again, if you will, right now. And it's it's evidenced by the sort of vehicles that we've got, right? Going into this year, between our 21 and 22 model year vehicles, every vehicle that we have in our showroom is either all new or completely revised, right? We've got all new styling on the Mirage and the Mirage G4, the four-door yeah. sedan. Um, we've got a full suite of safety features in the Outlander Sport. We've got a new gas engine, a bigger electric motor, and a bigger battery in the Outlander plug-in hybrid. Facelift on the Eclipse Cross, like we're driving out here at the program this week. And then, of course, the all-new Outlander is the biggest news for us. Every single piece on that vehicle, it's our flagship car, brand new. You know, we moved the company from Southern California out to the Nashville area about uh, 18 months ago now. In the middle, <laughs> right yeah, in the right middle at, of the pandemic. Right, absolutely. You know, we've hired 150 people in the last 18 months in our wow. company. Three quarters of our company is all new. We hired nearly 40 people during the pandemic alone. So, you know, there's, there's such a new attitude at Mitsubishi, and we're just so excited about what the future means for us. Let's wait a little bit where the, the boat slows down a little bit. I don't know how many interviews you've done on the boat, but <laughs> let's slow down a little bit. So a lot of uh, uh, new things, and this has really started because of the alliance with Nissan, right? Which uh, was started like four or five years ago? Yeah, I, uh, it was a little longer than that, but yeah, it's a global alliance between Renault, Nissan, and Mitsubishi. So um, yeah. Renault has a uh, an ownership stake in, in Nissan, and Nissan has an ownership stake in Mitsubishi. So all three brands work together when and where we can, when it makes engineering sense, when it makes financial and business sense. We we we, we engineer vehicles together, and the Outlander is the best example I can give you because the a lot of the engineering that's inside that vehicle is engineering that was developed jointly between us and the rest of the Alliance. So every brand benefits from that because it's so ridiculously expensive to develop a car from scratch. And the reality is most customers don't care whose name is on the air conditioner, right? Or, or what radio, they care about how it looks yeah. inside, how the car drives, what the styling is, because that's why you might buy, whether it's in, in our family, you might buy a Renault or a Nissan or a Mitsubishi because you know what that vehicle means to you and to your family. And, and whether it's value or ruggedness or style or fun to drive, you, you make that choice, right? So the more things you can share in the background that don't take away from what makes that vehicle unique, it only makes strong business sense. So the Outlander shares the platform in the US with the Nissan Rogue? Yeah, there's a there's a lot of shared engineering between the like Nissan the Rogue. On their yeah, game. that's like. correct. Yeah, yeah, the, the powertrain, the suspension, um, think of it more of, of where and how the parts are all attached to the vehicle, but then the tuning, like the suspension maybe is very similar between the two vehicles, but the Nissan is going to feel like a Nissan. Yeah. The Mitsubishi is going to feel like a Mitsubishi because for each of our respective brands, that's important to who we are. Yeah, and right? that's how they keep the identity and how Absolutely. people remember different sure. other countries and uh, yeah. different models. It's still... A Mitsubishi. That's right. You know, the, you, everyone thinks of something called badge engineering, right? We yeah. remember what, what happened to some of the, the domestic brands back in the 70s and 80s, where the cars were all the same, except for maybe the headlights and the taillights yeah. and the badges. That is so far from where we are now. Well, the, there are the, the, the parts of the Rogue and parts of the Outlander that were jointly developed. The Mitsubishi is built in our factory in Japan. It's designed by our design team. Our engineers made the vehicle feel the way it feels when you drive it. So, you know, it's a pure Mitsubishi. There's no question about it. But 
because business has changed so much on a global basis, it only makes sense, as I said, to share things where and when you can. Yeah. Um, you mentioned the cost of uh, producing a brand new a big mm. a vehicle from the scratch. Mm. I heard like years ago it was like a billion. Probably it's more than yeah, that now, pre right? Pretty much everything in the car industry is done in, <laughs> in increments of billions. So yeah, yeah, it's a you know it's a very rough number, but yeah, it's about a billion dollars to develop a car from scratch. It's it's about two billion dollars to build a factory. You know, wow. it's everything's kind of done in in big things, but. It, it, very seldom do you have a clean sheet redesign, right? Yeah. You you update vehicles like Eclipse Cross, right? We the 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 things that we're experiencing in Eclipse Cross now is styling updates. Mm -hmm. The 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 base engineering hasn't changed that much. It's been updated. It's been freshened. It's been tweaked. So the the cost of the updates on the Eclipse Cross is nothing like the cost of developing a new car from scratch. Of course. So that that's how you can justify those huge expenses because it takes. Four, six, eight, ten years to to pay that off. Uh, and speaking of that, the Eclipse Cross, there is a very popular plug-in hybrid, right? So in Europe, in other parts of the country, yeah. uh, do we have that here? Are we gonna have it, or what's what's the plan with it? As of right now, there's no plans to bring the the plug-in hybrid version of the Eclipse Cross to the U.S. Um, we do have our own plug-in hybrid uh, Outlander. Right, as we as we were discussing earlier, the yeah. plug-in hybrid Outlander is is refreshed mechanically for this year. Better fuel mileage, more power from the gasoline engine, more power from the electric motors, and a bigger battery with longer range. And um, so, right now, the cells. Uh, what what is the most popular car in the cells here in the U.S.? Uh, it's actually it's Outlander. Outlander, Outlander. yeah, Outlander's our uh, two of the last three years. Outlander has been our number one selling vehicle, and then the third year it was Outlander Sport. So, you know, Outlander is our core vehicle here in the U.S. There's no question about it. The design, uh, as we were mentioning before, the car was uh, debuted digitally, of course, during the pandemic. Yeah. And I have to be honest, I was, I, I was telling you that uh, when, you, when I saw it in, in pictures or through video, I wasn't very convinced about that design. But now when you see it in real, in the, in, in the flesh, like real, in the real life, I mean, it, it really makes sense. I mean, I don't know if you... You can share some of the the design philosophy behind all yeah. that. Yeah, and I, I can't tell you why it looks so much better in person than it does in pictures, but I, I agree with you. I think it's you know it's a vehicle you've really got to see, you've got to experience it and spend some time with it. Um, it, it looks much bigger, I think, visually. Maybe that's because the, the proportions. Uh, the, yeah. Yeah, right, the design right. team built a vehicle, designed a vehicle that's very horizontal. Right, lots of long straight lines. The roof is quite straight. The hood line is quite straight, and the hood comes up and it runs all the way through the through the window opening down the side. Big 20-inch wheels. 18s are standard on the on the entry trim. Everything from the first trim level beyond that has 20-inch wheels. So, yeah, design is super critical on this vehicle. Right, this is the beginning of the next generation of Mitsubishi design. And it starts with this particular car. And we'll see this starting to evolve going forward. We see some of that again on the Eclipse Cross, yeah. right? With the daytime running lights up high on the on the hood. Really because sharp, yeah. that's where that's where a driver, an oncoming driver's eye naturally goes to that height. And then we move the headlights down low because that moves the headlights down out of the glare of oncoming drivers. So there's a lot of thought, a lot of consideration gone into that design. And you mentioned all the cars are built in Japan. No, car, no yep. Mitsubishi cars are built in the US. For no, that's correct. Uh, uh, the, uh, all of the SUVs are built in Japan and the Mirage and the Mirage G4 are built in Thailand. 
in our oh, factory wow. in Thailand. So the move to te to Tennessee from California uh -huh. to Tennessee was just based on the alliance with Nissan, or what? No, or it was to do with that, or what? It, you, it, it had a little to do with it, but we looked at we we narrowed down our move to six cities around the U.S. and ultimately it came down to Texas, yeah. Dallas, <laughs> yeah, and to to the Nashville, Tennessee area, and the 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 governor of Tennessee, the the economic commission, uh, development commission, they wanted us to come to Tennessee. Yeah. They made it they made it very attractive for us, and. It, most importantly for us, though, it was a place we knew our team would want to go. Yeah. Right? The, the people in California that worked for the company when we were going to make that move, it had to have the right weather, it had to have good schools, a good standard of living. And we found that in the Nashville area with no problem at all. You know, I made the move. I am so happy in the yeah, area. Yeah, I was going to ask it. you about that personal oh, yeah. move, like because you were in California forever. Right? Yeah, I lived in California for 40 years. I yeah. mean, my, my parents moved, moved to San Diego when I was 11, and that's, you know, I don't sound like I'm from California, but <laughs> um, no, I, I never thought I'd leave Southern California. Yeah. I loved my life there, and, and then the opportunity to make this move with Mitsubishi came up, and, you know, it's, it's brilliant. We love it. Love the area. The people are amazing, and From a corporate perspective, we've, as I said, we've hired 150 people since we've been there. We've found so many talented people in the area, so much new thinking that's injected, kind of whole new life into the brand. Yeah. Well, um, very exciting times for you personally and for the brand and uh, for the customers too, because yeah. with, the, with the new cars. Uh, so thank you very much, because this is one of the first events Um, after the pandemic or I mean we're still in the pandemic <laughs> or after the lockdown or like the, the ban, travel ban and all that so thank you for coming from Miami for the opportunity and we're gonna keep enjoying this uh, boat trip here in the Everglades <laughs> thank you Javier and thanks for coming and muchas gracias and the car fits really well here in this environment too so we look for the videos for that okay awesome I love it thank you thank you that was my experience with Mitsubishi here in Miami so thank you Anton for your time it's always really really cool to hear you I'm very Insightful. I always learn a lot when when I do. Anton, are you there still? Maybe not. Oh yeah. <laughs> so well, thank you very much. It's all. <laughs> thank you, Javier. It's uh, always a pleasure to discuss these uh, productive and interesting subjects. So uh, hopefully, this year will be one where things open up on a multitude of fronts, and we can all experience these wonderful products and the people around them in various management and other development positions in all sorts of corners of the world. Yeah. Uh, Carl, uh, we're going to be in uh, Arizona pretty soon, right? So I'll see you there, I hope. I hope so. I don't know if uh, you guys got your email saying that you have to have proof of a negative COVID test. Uh, oh, wait, I'm sorry. Did Talk I'm talking about, I'm sorry, that's the Mitsubishi. There's a local Mitsubishi driver. Yeah, yes. I did it. That's the and one I did. Yeah, and you have to get proof within two days of uh, showing up to the event of a negative test. And, uh, and get no tested there. At yeah, the same yeah, time, it, exactly. To, I'm not going for that reason. I don't need anything jammed up my nose. Thanks. I was just going to say, I don't, feel like, <laughs> I don't feel like having my brain scraped. So I'm now all of a sudden, I'm not sure I'm going to be there, but we'll see. Well, so, well, I did it already. So I, I, we have the experience in the show at least. <laughs> so thank you very much for listening. And we'll talk to you next week, Carl and Lauren. Goodbye. Take care, guys. Take care. Thank you for listening. For more, check us out online at TotalCarscore.com.